Maybe that's a dodge. I don't know. No. Um, yeah, the way to way to not answer my question and uh, give us a preview for what's coming up on your podcast. <laughs> so you're very good at this. Yeah. Very, very, very media savvy. I'm all about that promotion. Already. I'm all about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, welcome to It Means What It Means, the podcast in which a guy with some college and a day job asks experts questions about biblical studies. This is a special episode that I'm releasing for Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. I decided to release the episode with one of my favorite people. No offense to anyone who's been on the podcast, but this guy has been one of my closest friends for 25 years. I love him. He has been the motivating factor for most of my drive to get smarter, to learn more, especially in many disciplines that feed into biblical studies. In fact, a lot of our conversations about Douglas Campbell, Jacob Milgram, and a whole lot of other people are what drove me to just say, all right, it's time for me to start cold calling people and doing interviews. So I can't express to you how much it means to me that I got to sit down with someone I love so much, someone I admire so much, and pick his brain about what he does for a living. So I'm not going to belabor this. Let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Daniel Rodriguez. Daniel Rodriguez, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, sir. Okay, so normally here I say, we tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, and I'm going to do that in a minute, but you're a special guest because we've been friends for 25 years. We met back in 1998. I was 15. You were 12. And instantly (laughs) took a liking to you. You have always been and continue to be one of the smartest people that I know. And you we need to start to over. Hold on, hold on. Hold no, on. we're not starting <laughs> over. So yeah. now, so now, so now that the, now that the listeners have an understanding of what they're dealing with in this episode, this is Daniel Rodriguez. Oh. He's one of my best friends. Daniel, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Daniel. Nice to meet you. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've known each other for a long time. Through church, and then we've also had other similar things in our lives, like debate and other things. But yeah, we've been friends for a long time. So I'm here because uh, I'm a I work in Bible translation. Um, I got my PhD in biblical languages. I studied under Christo Fandamerva. Hebrew grammar stuff. He did applying cognitive linguistic methods to how we read the Bible and how we account for the biblical Hebrew language. And so most of my research uh, is over there. But I one time shot my mouth off about something in the New Testament, and I one time shot my mouth off about Bible translation theory. And so I think you wanted to talk about. Bible translation. But we've been friends for a long time, and if I'm silly with, with Jared, because I, <laughs> I, I know I said you're telling them a little bit about yourself, but don't you dare talk to them. That's my audience. You talk to me. Oh, 
All right, people, Uh-oh. welcome to the Daniel Show. <laughs> Y'all are going to come to my new podcast starting. Oh, I've already talked about you on the podcast in the first episode. We know you're not going to start your own podcast because you said it's too much work. Actually, you did have a podcast teaching Hebrew. Is that still out there and available for people to download? No, no, I weren't really happy with it. So I don't think you can get it. I hope you don't try. I think there's some people on uh, follow it on Facebook still, and you can maybe get some of that stuff through Facebook. But if you want to learn uh, how to read Hebrew as a, as a beginner Bible student, there's a lot of really cool free stuff out there. Podcasts are hard. My, my hat's off to you for doing it. So we got about 30 episodes in and then gave up. I'm not quite at 30 yet. Okay. But today's conversation is going to be around your article from 2018 titled Reframing Hospitality, Cognition, Social Bonding, and Mimetic Criticism. So terrible title. Did you give it that title or did somebody else do that? It's so long and it's got the the scholarly colon in it. Yeah. You were like, they're going to know I'm so smart. Yeah, all the smart people are going to love me. You do a gerund phrase with a colon and then a list and it sounds smart. That's the formula. All right. So you have keywords in here. Can we go through some of those? They made me do that. I didn't say, hey, here's my (laughs) keywords. They said, did you hear the ding? I just got a ding. If I get dinged on my computer, do you hear that? I don't think so. Uh, Oh, I just heard it. This is all going to stay in. <laughs> this is terrorist. This is the worst podcast I've ever heard. Challenge accepted. They said give us key words, and you gave them a list of words, right? But yeah, or they took it from there. I, maybe I gave it to them. I don't know. But I okay. didn't come up with that. I think that got stuck in there. It's still helpful, I think, to go through these. So I'll start. I'll just read off. the. So Gerard. Mm-hmm. Who's Gerard? René Girard is a French thinker. He is in the, I think you call it Academy Francais, the French Academy, like with Lacan and those other smart guys. Who's the other one I'm trying to think of whose name I can see his face and his name is escaping me right now. And he's a big translation. Derrida, those guys, he's in that group. Is this like quick fire or you want me to talk about Gerard? Because no, there's more, want, there's yeah, four more on the list here. Explain who he is and what his significance for this article is. So Rene Gerard was a, he has, I need to look up, he's been dead now for at least 10 years, maybe a little bit more. He was a literary teacher. He taught classic literature and through teaching became a scholar of literature. And in his literary studies, he noticed a pattern that has come to be called mimesis or mimetic rivalry and has developed into a school of thought called mimetic criticism. And it is not cool nowadays to be into this stuff still. Most people in biblical studies uh, moved on a long time ago from Gerard, and sometimes I think that's with good reason. And I think that I think that that mimetic criticism is a tool in a toolbox, like anything can be a tool. Foucault's 
power stuff is a tool in a toolbox when we're interpreting and when you're watching a movie when you're living life. Um, people can take that too far to where now everything is power and there's no such thing as any kind of relationship without power. And similarly, people can take Girard too far and say everything is nothing without mimesis. Don't want to do that, but I don't want to throw away a useful tool. Um, I found it useful here. This paper is really about violence in Bible translation. And Girard, it has a, it, mimetic criticism has a theory of violence, and I find it useful in many cases. I don't think it explains everything all the time, but in many cases I find it useful. Also, specifically, I know some of the Bible scholar people, they hear Girard and they freak out because they know that Girard is fast and loose when it comes to biblical interpretation. And that's true. And there's certainly a lot of valid criticisms that we could give to things that Gerard wrote. Uh, I have been vocal about his stuff on Satan. He wrote one book called I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. It's very popular and it has a lot of useful thinking about how we think with mimetic criticism. However, in my opinion, it's all based on incorrect information about Satan, because he didn't read Ryan Stokes' work. And there's some things that, as we learn about the Bible, the theories that people might use for different kinds of interpretation, if they can adjust, then great, they're still useful. And I think mimetic criticism can adjust, but a lot of people don't want it to. They feel like Gerard wrote something, so it's not good. So, okay, so mimetic criticism, the, the pattern he noticed is rivalry. And he said that for a lot of things, and obviously not everything, don't want to overstate it, but for a lot of things, people don't actually want things because they want things. People want things because they see that others have them. Others having them makes you want them. So you are copying somebody. So you see someone who you admire, or you see somebody who has something or lives a life in a way that, at least in your perception, seems better, like desirable. And because that person that you have now put on a pedestal in your mind has this, then you think you should try to have it too. So in this way, desire is mimetic. Desire is copied. And so... If that happens in a positive way, maybe you see your jujitsu professor do something awesome and you are jealous. Jeff, I want to learn that. Show me how to do that. And he's an awesome jujitsu professor. So he says, okay. And he keeps showing you while he kicks your butt until you learn it. And then eventually you've got it. And that's a healthy kind of rivalry where it's about the relationship between you two building up and you're learning this thing and it's actually a good thing and it's a skill and there's nothing but positivity out of that particular example. But if it's like Jeff's wife, just for example, and oh my goodness, I love everything about Jeff is so awesome and he's got that wife, I need her too. And, and this is like the example that he has with uh, Count of Monte Cristo is a big classic example where this, there's a rivalry over this woman. and the rivalry isn't really about the woman. It's not about the, it's not about the desire. It's about this relationship between these two people 
And is it going to be violent because they are fighting over this object? Or is it going to be a good relationship where there's maybe like some conflict, but it's like a healthy kind of conflict that's building each other up over time? And I think that inter- that kind of interpersonal dynamic between people and then between larger groups also uh, is absolutely observable. So I, I think that's a useful tool because we can see that in a lot of different stories, as he showed, but that in stuff today, that's how marketing works today a lot of times. They throw you a celebrity and you should want this product because it's, you know, this person has it. So. But then he that gets applied to violence and it gets applied to religion in Girard's thinking. And so this is not just a explanation for how these kind of how desire gets copied, but now it's also an explanation for certain kinds of violence that uh, people might fight. People might be in conflict in a negative way um, for this reason. And so I think one of the, I'm just rambling, but I think one of the things just to, to get to it that I get to in the article there is that when you take this view of violence, that is a, a human thing. And we think about history, particularly start thinking anthropologically. If we go back to, I quoted Fraser in the, the article, if you go back to that kind of old school way of thinking about cross-cultural anthropology, studying cultures, then you come away saying violence is because of religion. Uh, that all these different groups, all these different cultures throughout history have developed along very similar trajectories, and they have all fought because of different religious views. This god is opposed to this god, and so people have to fight. And that gets dumbed down today in popular culture where people just say violent wars are because of religion, and it's a very quick way to dismiss any kind of religious talk or anything like that. Um, so I think it's a cheap, quick thing for a kind of a superficial atheism that people put out there, which is... A, anyway, so Girard says that's not the right way to read history. Religion didn't make violence, made religion. And so there were people who were in rivalry with each other because they wanted the same things, and so they're fighting. And fighting over these things just leads to endless reciprocity, reciprocal violence. You have to get the person back for what they did, and you got to go get them back for what they did. And it goes on for generations. And all around the world, religious systems evolved up around. Uh, and this is where some people start disagreeing with Girard, because you can point to examples where what I'm saying is not the case. And that's absolutely true. Not everything 100% follows this. but. I think as a typology, we can find a lot of examples where religious systems, particularly sacrificial traditions, arise out of a way to contain the violence and keeping it from destroying the families for generations of both parties. So now instead of just endless violence, now we can have a sacrifice and we can pick a sacrificial victim. And now that victim is going to bear the violence that we otherwise would do to each other. We can all agree uh, that this person 
or later on as things develop, this animal or this wine or this whatever it is that sacrifice can can fill that role. I think the problem with a lot of that is that this is a guy who started teaching people how to read classic stories and it gets applied very cross-culturally to religious traditions and sacrificial traditions in a way that I think maybe needed to, a little more care needed to be taken. At the same time, I think this is mostly true and mostly useful. That This is how violence historically has happened, and this is how religious violence has happened. That it's not the case that religions start violence, but that violent people are also religious. And uh, this way of thinking about sacrifice in a lot of different traditions is a way to start containing the violence and to protect the community from it getting worse and worse and worse. So violence here is restricted to actual physical violence. Is that? Yes and no. I'm talking about that when we're starting with Gerard, we're talking about that. But as we get into Bible translation, some people will start using violence more metaphorically for a relationship breakdown. I, and as I think you're going to ask me, I try to resist that. I understand other people talk like that. So and I'm interacting with some of those thoughts and I'm not trying to judge it. But at the same time, in the world of Bible translation, there's still real violence that happens. Some people don't want a Bible translation in their community even though there are those in their community that do want it. And some people don't want it that particular way and things get violent still. So um, I, I try to not make a metaphor out of violence. So when you say people, some people don't want a Bible translation, are you talking about people within a Bible reading community or people external to that community? How do you I add? guess it depends how you're defining a community. Are Americans a Bible reading community? Yeah, some are. Some are. Some are very opposed to it. Some, most don't care. But you would find that even if you go to a place where the majority of people are uh, Muslim or Hindu, um, you might say culturally they don't want it. That's not the case. There are individuals that do. Do they count? Are they a part of that community? Uh, I think they are. That's what I'm trying to figure out what you mean when you're talking about these communities. My community, the area I live in, I'm sure there's a majority attitude with regard to the Bible. So I didn't know if it was like American history, a time came when people didn't want something other than the King James Bible, right? Maybe if you're talking... No, I don't think that's it may be very in a popular way, but like that every I guess that's what I'm getting at is that these individual opinions are still a part of the community. All you really need is one that's different and it counts. Okay. Yeah. Just trying to get <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out what you mean there. Okay. So the community doesn't side, necessarily buddy. you're not necessarily <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. No, but okay. also if you so in the in the article, there's specifically uh, example talked about in in India, and there are Christians in India. There's different kinds of Christians in India. There's like different denominations in India. So when you talk about Indians or people in India, do you mean the majority 
culture that is predominantly Hindu, or do you mean all of the people? And then if we're talking about Bible readers over there, do we just mean the people that are currently reading the Bible? Or do we mean maybe some people who might start to read the Bible, which is something that the right now the government over there wants to pretend isn't ever going to happen. But that's not the way reading works. This isn't even about let's go out and proselytize people. But if you just have a question about something and you know that your neighbor might have an answer, you might ask and y'all might talk. And just like here, if you had just like you do, you're not out telling people what to believe. You're not telling people that they need to believe the Bible so Jesus can be their savior. Otherwise, they're going to go to hell. But you want the freedom to talk about the Bible and you want the freedom to talk to people with different opinions on it. And you get to exercise that freedom and you can use a Bible translation to do that. And there are Christians in India that want that freedom. And there's non-Christians in India that want that freedom. And it's not that it's like illegal, but they're very quick to say, if you're talking about the Bible with someone who already doesn't believe what you believe, you're obviously proselytizing. And it's, wow, so is this, would this podcast get you in trouble if you were doing it in India? It might. I'm sure it's going to end up getting me in trouble in America too, but you know, I might we'll get see. in trouble for talking about this. I hope they don't not. stop me at the border and show me this episode. The at what border? <laughs> you going into Oklahoma anytime soon or something? That's where they get me. Yeah. Okay. The the next term then is Dunbar. I only mm-hmm. knew this in terms of that number. So is that what you're concerned mm-hmm. with here? Dunbar's number? If not, yeah. can you give a, a more full explanation? Yeah, so Robin Dunbar is a scholar who is famous for what we call Dunbar's number. Probably don't have to tell folks about that. It's it's about the know what that is. He's actually got a new book out now on friendship and how the research behind what Dunbar's number has to say about friendships. And I haven't read it, but it looks really good. So I want to go check it out. I wouldn't assume that people know what Dunbar's number is. So it's fine if you want to go into the weeds on that one. Insert the Joe Rogan clip here. I think that's where a lot of people learned <laughs> about it because it just. Dunbar's number. So Dunbar's number is a study of uh, communication through evolution, study of language through evolution and relationships and now friendship. It goes, my, my interest in it is language because I do language. Um, so that's what I used it for. But Dunbar's number says that humans have meaningful relationships with about a hundred, 150 other people. Um, because of the way that we make social bonds. And this evolved out of primate social bonding, which was done through grooming. Um, so like the primates would like comb through the other, they sit one in front of the other and combing through the hair and picking out the, the fleas or the ticks or whatever. And they're getting their spit on it and giving them a little bath and just, it's primate grooming. And that's how primates would make communities is by grooming each other. They would socially bond through grooming. And if grooming is how you socially bond, then you can make meaningful relationships with tens of other individuals. Whereas if like us, we can speak to each other, it makes social bonds a lot more efficient 
And so we can make social bonds with like meet with meaningful relationships as I'm sure his work is like friendships, um, not just facial recognition and, and talking to somebody, but like we can actually keep in our brains about 150, 100 to 150 relationships at a time. The point of that for me is that language then is not about communication. Ex- uh, sorry, language is not about information exchange. Uh, we don't, as mammals, need language to communicate about events that are happening. Wolves can hunt without speaking to each other. There's you can there's a whole lot of stuff on animal communication, but animals can communicate without speaking to each other. You and me, if we're in each other's presence, we can communicate without speaking to each other, depending on whatever needs to happen. Now that limits the things we're going to talk about. So being able to exchange information with language is certainly a huge advantage that we have exploited and and using to our advantage as a species. But evolutionarily, that's not why it happened. The reason the evolutionary impetus behind human language is forming social bonds. If language is about forming social bonds, then speaking to anyone at any time, we are doing a kind of relationship making. We're doing the relationship thing. And depending on how far that goes with somebody, maybe they're going to become one of your 150 or maybe they're not. So that is a different way to think about language in general, that language is here for us to make relationships with others. And actually, without the relationships, you can't, and this gets more into my past research, my master's and doctoral stuff, but coming from a cognitive linguistic training, we know that you, like language doesn't work in humans that don't have relationships. You have to have relationships at a young age as you are becoming a speaker of your mother tongue. Otherwise, you're never going to be a speaker of your mother tongue. At most, you'll get some babbling. And fortunately, most people don't get treated that way. We but there are some terrible examples, and if you want to go read about one, you can look up my dissertation and hear about how some child abuse taught us about what linguistics. Who could say no to an offer like that? Go read a it's dissertation about child abuse. No, it's a, a case of, if you Google it, it's a girl from the 70s named Jeannie. That's not her real name, but they named her Jeannie. And it's just very instructive about how important and how embodied language is and how dependent it is on relationships and your capacity to speak and to have normal life communicating, just being able to talk with others is dependent on relationships because language is not just about exchanging information. I know there are cases where this isn't true, like where there will be multilingual family or a multilingual community. So a a child will come up learning multiple languages, but in general, it's people, when you talk about communication through language, it's people speaking the same language, but then we have translation. Can we talk about translation for a little bit? Mm -hmm. Because now it's, how does that function? I don't want to try to impose my understanding of it, because you actually do this for a living. Explain to us what translation is. Translation or Bible translation? Because I do Bible translation, but the world of translation and translation studies is a lot bigger than that. And what I do is very niche. Can we can we start big and funnel it down? 
So translation is taking one thing and putting it in another form. And now the big question in translation studies is, does this always have to be language or text? There's a lot of stuff on it. I think you're going to ask me at some point, who's James Maxey? Because he's in my paper a lot also. Stop now his, giving spoilers, all right? His his thing now is multimodal translation. And a lot of these folks are doing multimodal stuff. I think there's the obvious answer. Translation is taking something that's taken one text in a language and taking that and putting it in another language in a way that's meaningful um, to the receiving language like it was to the original. Um, but, for example, like is Leonardo DiCaprio version of Romeo and Juliet, is that a translation? That's a good question. I don't know. That's where translation studies is at now. For a lot of years, it's, there's been a lot of stuff on orality and performance, um, particularly if you're thinking about translating. So what I do is I translate text, right? But I translate text for people who are going to read it. I don't actually translate text. I'm a consultant. And I help teams who translate text. I just answer questions for them but if you're deaf you don't read if you're deaf and you you sign language english is a second language so you don't really read english like you would your mother tongue so for them what's been going on the last decade or so is thinking about translation as performance or translation as an oral performance or as something we can act out or whether you're using sign language or whether you're using multiple people to demonstrate a scene or act out something, that is translation also. So the there's a really big... And then like when you go to the translation studies stuff, you got people that are doing like medical texts or technical things that are going to be in different languages or somebody that's doing a Spanish version of Shakespeare for ninth graders. There's a, there's a whole lot of stuff in, in translation, but... Bible translation is a lot more specific. Something I've come back to a lot over the years is something you said to me, and it, I don't know, must have been 10, 15 years ago. Rojo isn't red. I think about that a lot. Is that still something you would say? It is and it isn't. I mean, what is red? What does Rojo mean? It means red, right? Rojo means Rojo. This is how you explained it to me. Yes, yeah, I can understand right, right. But it. In, inter- but in translation, in, in English terms, I think the, the main thing here is that things are not equivalent. That's the point of that, that example, is that languages are non-equivalent. They are similar. The next layer of complexity you put on that for me was, what is a cat? And yeah, I could walk through that- a machine, a feline creature. I could use cat to refer to that guy over there. So in translation... Is that in thinking about that, cat isn't gato, even so it's, if it yeah, is. It's like your podcast. Sometimes. It means what it means. It means what it means. It's not. It's, it not necessarily means what it Thank says. You. It means that's what, what I, it means. No, that's not what I was trying to. Get, <laughs> it's not what I was trying to get you to do. But but yeah, yeah, okay. So it means what it means in its original context, right? And your right. job in translating is to so what, like try to bridge if you're if to you're a translating. Different... If you're translating that 70s show and they said they keep saying red do you, in, into Spanish, do you translate it Rojo? They might be talking about Donna. So would they call her Rojo? Is that what uh, you're getting at here? For her, it would be feminine if they did that because she's a lady. Okay. But if they're saying red as in the Eric's dad's name, 
they would probably just transliterate it, just leave it alone. So yeah, so the point of that is that 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 when you have a word that we learn as vocabulary when you're learning another language, these two items are non-equivalent in the sense that Rojo can do a whole lot of things in Spanish that red won't do in English, and red can do things in English that Rojo won't do in Spanish. Are they similar enough for a certain context when you have the box crayons crayons out? Absolutely. But does that mean Rojo means red? No. Same thing with cat. Meaning is contextual. Rainier de Blois is a Hebrew Bible scholar, and he's also a translation theorist. He's the, I believe he's the president right now of the Knight Institute. But he says, words don't have meanings. Meanings have words. So we need to think about it okay. as we, we have these relationships as babies and as children. We have these embodied experiences. We copy sounds and words, and then we start making our own. And all these embodied experiences are meaningful in our head, in our minds, and we express that meaning as we are building relationships with people. That's what language is. Which is not typically how we learn it. We, at least in in my experience, in late twentieth, early twenty first century. It was like, what does the dictionary say? So that's how you know what words mean. But that's the dictionary chronicles how we use words mm -hmm. to the point. I think it was like 2009, maybe Sarah Palin used the word on Twitter, refudiate. And everybody made fun of her. And then later that year, Oxford, the, the OED came out and they said, no, this is a neologism. We're adding this to the OED because it doesn't mean refute or repudiate. It, it, like she wasn't clearly misusing a different word or blending two words together when she meant only one of them. She was using it in a unique way. As much as people wanted to pile onto her and say, oh, look how stupid you are. She came up with a new word because we have these noises to convey ideas. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, we create these noises to express what we think. And then sometimes, sometimes it's a misfire. Things. No, and so, sometimes it's a misfire. Sometimes, like we meant to grab one word and move fast and grab another. But like in the as yet unreleased episode with Brent Strawn, where I use the word perspicacity <laughs> incorrectly, yeah, you, you just messed up. That's all. That's nobody. Yeah. He's not gonna change things because of you. No, you no, just they're gonna mark up. me down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a red mark on my paper. Okay, so as it applies to biblical translation, because there's, so for you, there's biblical translation. If you sat down, you could translate a passage of Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic. But you, as you said, what you do largely now is consulting work, which kind of adds a different layer because it's, so you could take from Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek and translate into English. But now you're going to other places to talk to them and consult with them about their Bible translations. Can you talk about that? Translation consultancy is a old term that is in the Bible translation industry they're trying to get rid of because they don't like how it sounds. The diplomatic way to say this. Translation consultancy is helping teams of translators make their product. They want to make a Bible translation, and that Bible translation is going to follow a certain translation brief. 
and my job is to help them do that with excellence, meaning that if there is any kind of scrutiny on how the original text is being handled, that what we have is excellent, and that anything in terms of the target language, how it's received, how it's heard, does it, in, in my work, we do what's called what we call easy to read translations. So we're aiming, our goal is that like a 10 to 12 year old could hear part of our translation read out loud and they don't have any vocabulary. For example, in the New Testament in English, we don't say disciple, we say follower, because disciple is a church word. In the Old Testament, we don't say tabernacle, we say special meeting tent, because tabernacle is a church word, it's higher reading level. And our translation has a audience. It's meant for a certain person. It's not meant for a church to adopt and start reading from their pulpit every Sunday. Big high church people. Um, it's more meant for kids. It's meant for people who are learning English. It's meant for maybe people who are new to reading the Bible. And we are fortunate in English to have that kind of variety. I think I got off on your question. Translation consultancy, for me, is helping people do that. Translation consultancy in the wider world of Bible translation, most of the time is helping very is helping a small group of people in a small language family make a Bible that they are going to read from the pulpit in church. And so those Bible translations a lot of times do keep the more formal church language. Um, and once that gets used for a while and they say, we need something for our kids or for our neighbors, then maybe they'll call somebody like me and then we come do the the other kind. So in, in translation, in Bible translation theory, this is called formal equivalence versus dynamic equivalence. And that goes back to some old translation theorists, namely Eugene Nida and Kenneth Pike and those folks. But as I just told you a few minutes ago, I don't think equivalence is appropriate at all for talking about languages. I think non-equivalence is talking is appropriate for talking about languages. I don't think we need to try to, but that's just the the terms that people use. Uh, formal equivalence means a more formal translation, and dynamic equivalence means a more freer, kind of meaning-based translation. For example, with what, what we were saying before, if, if Hebrew said cat, which, by the way, the Hebrew Bible never says cat. The whole Hebrew Bible word cat is never used. A formal equivalence uh, approach would say that in English you need to write down cat even if it obviously doesn't mean cat, even if cat is reference to a person, we're going to write down cat and maybe footnote or somehow otherwise let pe people need to figure out that this means cat. And uh, dynamic equivalence, more meaning-based, would say, no, cat here means a person. Maybe it's a girl's name. Maybe it's a musician. Maybe it's, a, like we said, you know, caterpillar backhoe and just for short they call it the cat and a more meaning based we would say whatever that thing actually means let's put that because we're not trying to make our audience figure it out but i don't think one's right and one's wrong i think they're different approaches and i think good translators know how to do both can you explain what you mean when you say excellence 
for me in Bible translation, we're starting with the Bible as the source, and I want the representation in the target language to be excellent, meaning that if uh, if I think that uh, Paul saying the righteous will live by the law, that if I think, and this is where people start saying, no, now you're putting stuff in the Bible, or and it's, I'm trying to help people, and maybe we should do a footnote or something. But it says the, the righteous one will live by the law, and people read that, and they say, oh, that means none of us live, we're all guilty because we don't live by the law, we all fail. I think maybe Bible translators could consider helping readers a little bit and doing something saying Jesus, maybe in parentheses or brackets, Jesus, the righteous one, will live by the law. And then maybe a footnote about how his obedience or the fact that the, the, the facts of his life have to do with uh, him being referred to as the righteous one and live there has to do with his resurrection. Some people would say, well, you're interpreting that and sticking your interpretation in there. And that might be one way to judge it and dismiss it. Another way to look at that is to say people here are understanding it incorrectly because they are going with what they think these words mean. They're adding up what they think these words mean, and they're not understanding that Paul is using this in a way to talk about Jesus. When he talks about the righteous one, he doesn't mean if someone is righteous and that isn't you, so you should feel bad about it. But this is a reference to Jesus himself. So maybe we should help people. I know this isn't out yet either, but Chris Tilling had some words about Bible translations needing to help people. Because you can take something like a translation of Romans where all the words are correct. They translated all the words in a way where if you go look them all up in a Greek to English dictionary, they did it correctly. And yet people's understanding is so off because sometimes this literature, you need help reading it. Maybe one way to do that is that kind of stuff we just need to put in footnote. Okay, great. Let's do it. Let's do that. Maybe it's okay since we have a lot of Bible translation versions, maybe it's okay to have one that would just say we think this verse is a reference to Jesus himself. So I know ideally, if we're talking biblical studies, Bible study in general, that anyone who claims to be doing it is going to be doing it in the original languages. At least that's what I've gleaned from you, right? If you're leading Bible study, you should be starting from the original languages. Is that your preference? I think if you're going to teach something, you should know what you're teaching. And if you're you trying to get me to rant and go off on people, no, I can do hold that. on. I have a series of questions. All right. Okay, so ideally that would be the case. And in doing that, this person, even if you're dealing with other academics, so if I pull up one of the Journal of Biblical Literature articles, there's going to be translation. They're going to be saying, okay, so as we're dealing with Sarks, talking about flesh, I think we should render it this way instead of that way. And I'm not trying to get you to call anybody out, but what is the difference in that and in what you do? Because I think there is a functional difference, right? Can you say that question? Yeah. So translation that happens as a result of biblical study, 
is different than translation that happens in order to produce a translation? Is that nonsense or does that make sense? I think you've even had some guests that have talked about that they're writing commentaries and they're doing translation work in English. When when they you know when you're talking to a Bible scholar who says that they're doing translations, what they mean they not trying to make anybody feel bad or just hurt feelings, but this is a statement that a, a lot of Bible scholars make, and they've never made a Bible. Um, they 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 don't work in translation studies. They're not working in in the Bible translation industry. What they mean is they got a contract to write a commentary. And as a part of their commentary, they're offering their own translation within the commentary. And that's awesome. And I think they should. And I hope there's more people that do it. But when they say, I do Bible translation, it is not the same thing as what the Bible translation industry does. Most of the Bible translation industry is working in very small languages. A lot of these languages they're having to help create orthographies um, and some of these languages are dying and one of the great things about bible translation as a as an industry like across the world is the linguistic work that bible translators do in preserving dying languages so we're going to have a record of these languages before there's no more speakers of them. so that that is a great humanitarian and for the field of linguistics it's a it's a wonderful thing that the world of Bible translation does. And the scholars who work in English and write commentaries and articles and, and talk about Bible translation and like to quickly criticize Bible translation, it's not the same thing. What they're doing is giving you a, their own way of reading a text that they have not had to negotiate with anybody else. When a Bible translation gets published, except for like Robert Alter, because he's a one-man show, or Eugene Peterson. Now, Eugene Peterson is pretty open about the fact that he asked for a lot of help, and he got a lot of feedback from people. Good for him. He didn't really have to. But for the most part, when you think about like a church Bible, a Bible that's going to get used in churches, there's a lot of voices in that process, and the scholar's voice is not the loudest. So it's very different. And the Bible translation world is more difficult for that. And that's why I wrote a journal article using a theory of violence for Bible translation, because it's very difficult. When scholars talk about this, they mean, I did my study, and I'm going to explain each verse to you. And hopefully, I, I, what I hope they all do is I'm going to get into the weeds on every little linguistic feature in Hebrew or Greek here. So that way, if you're learning Hebrew or Greek and you're using my commentary as a discussion partner, I'm going to help you with any question you might have. I wish more scholars would do that all the time. The best ones do. Um, that's great. And that's helping people study and learn. That's not the same thing as making a Bible translation. So this is where the hospitality part comes in, right? When you're working on a Bible mm -hmm. translation. So I think you, you mentioned India, but can you talk about the specific example that you cite in the article with regard to India and how that applies to hospitality? With ho where I'd rather first, sure, but... Say whatever um, you want then. Hospitality is something that I learned about from James Maxey. I am not a translation scholar. I am a trained... Hebrew grammarian. That's my main work is Hebrew grammar. Specifically, I did stuff on applying cognitive linguistics to Hebrew prepositions. 
So if you have a question about a preposition in the Bible, me and Chip Hardy are your guys. I've been working in Bible translation, and I had some opinions because I would go to these conferences and I would hear papers. And one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite thinkers is this guy named Dr. James Maxey. He used to be the president of the Nida Institute or maybe like second in command. I forget what I think Phil Towner was then. So I'm probably mixing stuff up. He used to work at the American Bible Society. I'm really going to need you to have an answer on that. (laughs) He used to work at the American Bible Society. Now he's at Seed Company, but still in translation world. Praise the Lord. Uh, He taught me about hospitality. He had been writing theory papers, translation theory papers, using uh, him and Phil Towner. The Reverend Dr. Phil Turner, writing using Lacan and Ricoeur, which also from the French Academy. So I, when I thought at some point, I was thinking, man, Gerard would fit in really good with these guys. But they were using Lacan and Ricoeur to talk about translation and hospitality. And James, in his book, talked about his experience in Francophone Africa. And this is this is what I was trying to get to earlier a second ago with consultancy also because consultancy translate my job translation consultancy by some people for good reason and some for not good reason it's viewed as like a missionary work I don't think that's what I do but some people view it like that where there is this criticism of old school missionaries which is very valid and it's a, a I agree with this criticism that missionaries would come in and it's the white savior type thing. It's the Western white guy that's going to come and help these native people. And the more that you stop being native and you become more like me, then things are going to get better here and in your life. And there's a view. Then what James wrote about was experience in Francophone Africa, where the Bible translation agency, who is represented on the ground by the consultant, um, has an agenda. They want to get this Bible translation done for a reason. Um, They talk with the team on the ground, and the team on the ground has a different agenda. And they want their Bible translation for a different reason. And when funding is the issue, when the Western white Americans or the Western white Brits or whoever where the Canadians control all the dollars and can threaten withholding funding if things are not done the way that they want them to do. And what James wrote about was that the translation team just keeps their heads down, says, yes, sir, does whatever they want to do just to keep things going. Not whatever they want to do, but they're doing what they need to do to keep things going. But they keep working in a way that they know there is a end date for the consultant and the Bible translation agency. And once that end date comes, then these people have a product that they will now use for their purpose. It was not the ones that the translation agency wanted. This creates a problem where there's this control from these Westerners that probably should, that not probably, but definitely should not have been exercised in the way 
that it was exercised. And there is this feeling of like necessary dishonesty from the the people who are actually making the product because they feel like there's some kind of loyalty to their own community that's going to be sacrificed if they um, do exactly what these white Westerners want. James, with others, introduced this idea of hospitality of instead of treating translation as information exchange, let's actually treat translation like a relationship. Let's treat this as some we are a guest going into this place and we need to be a good guest. Or maybe, and what I wrote about in my article was using that metaphor and thinking about more on the Bible exegesis side that my job and not that I'm the expert and I know everything and I've, you know, been in the time machine and walked around ancient Israel and you can trust that everything I say is infallible, but I'm the one that's there to help with the Hebrew Bible questions and the Hebrew Bible issues. So I need to be a good host. Also, I need to show hospitality to my translation team that I am inviting to come experience the Bible with me in the way that I have, which is probably going to be different for them. And I need to be sensitive to their issues. Some of them are cultural. Some of them are theological. Some of them are linguistic. Um, and I need to be a good host for them and make that experience a good, fun thing for them. So that way they want to do this translation and we need to be transparent with each other about our goals and what, what we want. And there, there should not be this. And one of the great things about me also, my translation organization is different in the sense that we don't do the minority languages and we also I never talk to my translation teams about money because that's not what our relationship is about. And I'm fortunate that I work for an organization that is able to handle that stuff. Somebody else is able to handle that stuff. There's a lot of Bible translation consultants that have to spend a good chunk of their time raising their own money to travel around to churches or wherever, raise money for themselves so they can live and for their projects. Very fortunate that I don't have to do that. And that's not just a good work environment thing, but it, it makes it for a good project because it means the relationship that I have with my people really is only let's talk about the Bible together because we both are here because we like reading the Bible. So let's get in the weeds and let's talk about stuff and let's fight. And sometimes it's I know we're going to fight because some of them come from a certain background, but it's like you, it's you and Jeff fighting, but it's not, we're fighting over this thing, but it's, it's a, you have to learn how to wrestle with this text. Like other people before us have wrestled with this text. And I can show you how I've wrestled with the text. And I can show you how other thinkers before me have wrestled with the text. And now it's your turn and you're going to have to wrestle with the text. And I'm trying to give you tools as best I can. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to wrestle with this text. You're going to have to make a translation that is for people in your country. And when they have questions about it, you're going to answer them, not me. So you need to be happy with what you're making. It's hard to get past the fact that you're using an example of a man who's been beating me up for 12 years now. Are they, are they, just... hey, that's my go-to now. Anytime <laughs> this might get controversial, I'm going to make Jeff into that person. Yeah. Cause it's just a low key. Say, yes, sir. Da I, what we left out <laughs> in the introduction is that Daniel is also my favorite Brazilian jiu-jitsu purple belt. 
And that's why he asked me to step outside because he wants to choke me out. Had a couple of surgeries. Nothing big, but like stuff on my back. And just with work, having been on the mats recently, so it's terrible to referring to my jiu-jitsu experience and my friends might hear this and say, he's a lame pose. We're not even training right now. That's He's and holding up just a sign that says, belt. I'm the best in the world. That's what he's holding up a when, sign that says he's the best in the world to everybody when, who's listening. When did you get your brown belt? In July. Congratulations, everybody. Your host, your podcast host is a brown belt. Thank, thank you. Under Jeff Messina. And Jeff Messina is a very good coach. I have a lot of respect yeah. for him. And when it, whenever I am in the Houston area and I want to go train, I go to Jeff's gym. For sure. Jeff it's Messina. My, it's my commercial. He's That's my a, commercial. <laughs> I, I have to say this because of the lineage. Jeff Messina, Rodrigo Majeros, who received his black belt from Carlson Gracie. Yeah, it's a big deal. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know how much of this I want to keep in. Welcome to the new jujitsu <laughs> podcast. That was your real goal. Yeah. Totally Maybe. derail this. Into... <laughs> May, yeah, this is the preview for our, our podcast spinoff, which, hey, maybe that'll happen. When You know what? So I looked into uh, Highlander podcasts, and there's three. Just like at the top, there's three Highlander watch through podcasts. And I'm like, yeah, the world doesn't need another one of those. Okay. Tell the India story that you have in your article, because I, I think that's a really interesting example of some of the things that you've mentioned. This is something that any everybody from the beginning of Christians going to India has dealt with. And there's a lot of examples we can use. The one I used in the article is about wine, um, but you could also use this about cows. There's just some cultures that are going to react to things in the Bible in certain ways. And that's just the reality. So in India, holy people don't drink alcohol. Um, alcohol is, if you go to India, if I go to India, we can drink alcohol all we want. They're happy to serve us and take our money for it because we're decadent Westerners. We don't know any better. But Indians in a Hindu culture from a very young age, just that's the culture over there is holy people don't drink wine. So... When we have stories, whenever the Bible talks about alcohol in negative ways, that's fine. But whenever the Bible talks about alcohol in a positive way, many people in India for generations have objected. And sometimes those objections have been civil, and sometimes they have gotten violent. Uh, Some strategies have been to leave wine as one that say at the wedding in Cana, Jesus made wine or Jesus drank wine um, in different places. And just know that those translations really only serve Christians that are already in the country because they're the ones who will read that and will have probably already learned something about um, Jewish culture and the Greco-Roman world at the time. And that, Having wine at a meal is not And there's some people that just, you know, it doesn't matter. Alcohol is, is bad and no holy person should be doing it. And you're obviously trying to corrupt our society and corrupt our children by telling us about this God who drinks wine. And another strategy has been we can change wine to a drink or to juice or to something that sounds non-alcoholic. And that's more accepted by people who are not Christians, and they will tolerate reading the Bible more when you do that. Uh, But then sometimes people come say, you're lying. 
we know this is actually wine and this is about your God who drinks wine and you're trying to trick us. So there's not really a, a good solution there. Um, I don't present like an answer to that problem. But what I am saying is that we do have a good theory of what one, we know that language is about relationships. Two, we have a pretty good theory of violence. And that theory of violence works in the inverse also. If there is a rivalry over something that is going to lead to violence, all you have to do is stop fighting over it. You just value the relationship with this rival more than you value the object that you're fighting over, or the thing, or the whatever the win is, whether it's a thing or a person or an idea or whatever. You engage with the person, engage with the relationship rather than fighting over the thing. So that doesn't give translations a solution to that, but it's the same problem in with meat. Whenever we have the story of uh, like the prodigal son returns and the father says, "Let's kill a fatted calf to celebrate." You can't kill you can't kill a cat. You can't kill you can't kill a cow. You can't do that in India. So it's not holy. So we could change that to animal, as some translations have. But then there's some hardliners that will come at you and say, you're lying to us. We know this is okay. We know your religion says it's okay to kill cows. You're lying to us and you're trying to trick us. And certainly I'm not trying to trick anybody and I'm not empowering teams to trick anybody. But we do want people to read the Bible and not to get political, but we want people to have the freedom to read the Bible and to listen to a podcast like yours and to read Bible translations and see what they think about different issues that people talk about and be able to make up their own mind. And you do that with more information, not less. Yeah. I think it's important that you, when you sit at the table with people to have this kind of discussion or going through this kind of process, each side has to know what their priorities are. So I'm thinking of another example. I think it was William Mounts. He says, in working on the ESV, one of the challenges that they ran into was John 3.16. So all the scholars, all the academics who were there were like, it should be, this is how God loved the world. And the contingent of pastors were saying, people are going to run across this verse that they all know. And they're going to read it and they're going to be like, wait, why did you change it? Because that's not how it's been translated. Mm -hmm. So I think saying that's not accurate, that's how you like. So one side saying that's not accurate and the other side says it's not going to resonate with people. And we want people to read this, which is similar because I think in the article you say, if we condone wine, there's a lot of people who aren't going to even take this, aren't even going to take the Bible off the shelf. So the priority for the people in country doing the translating who want this Hindi or whatever language that they're translating it into, they want it to be read, but if they know it's not going to be read, that's a big priority for them. It should also be a priority for the people coming in from the outside, right? The people coming in from the outside need to be sensitive to issues. That's what Kind of whatever their decision is that they feel good is living with, I want to empower them to do that. And I also need to recognize that things are, I might disagree with it and think it's not perfect. And that has also been the case with the history of Bible translation in English. I'm an Episcopalian and I'm still not happy with the NRSV, the updated edition. 
Sorry to break in here, listeners, but there was a chunk of audio that, for whatever reason, was just not discernible, and I couldn't figure out how to fix it. So just to jump in here and explain, Daniel was saying the updated edition of the new Revised Standard Version had a translation of 1 Corinthians 6 9 that was called out specifically in a Greek lexicon called the BDAG. Hold on, who, who called them didn't out? Change that. BDAG, the lexicon. Whenever oh, I, you learn Greek, I know what whenever you, you learn Greek, yeah, that whenever you learn Greek, you'll eventually graduate to the scholarly lexicon, and the main scholarly lexicon that people use for the New Testament is. It's the acronym for it is BDAG, BDAG, Bauer, Danker, Art, and Gingrich. It's the scholars who made it. And if in its article, they call out, they name NRSV and says, you don't have support for this translation. And the updated edition didn't change it. And they know. And I don't think that's because you have to find NRSV people to explain. I can't read their minds. But I've been around Bible translation world for a little bit. And I suspect. That has to do with stakeholders. I don't think the scholars who work on the NRSV are uneducated and haven't read BDAC. I think they are well aware of that. But I think just like everybody around the world, whether you're in India and you have a problem with wine or beef, or whether you're in America and you have a problem with 1 Corinthians 6 9 not condemning gay people in the way you think it should, people use dollars and threats to keep Bible translations the way that they want them. And we can talk about how terrible that is for the poor people in India that just need to get their head on straight and think the right way. And if they could just get educated like us, maybe we wouldn't have this problem. And we still have that same problem in America with these uneducated people that can't get their head on straight. And, it's only and it's, I don't mean that in a condescending, judgmental way. I just mean as we treat this as if it's like a foreign problem for different cultures. And the reality is that in the in Western cultures, we still have people that are still driven by ideology rather than good study. Yeah, I think there may be some kind of hope in people's minds that like, if we could just get like a, just a clean translation, a clean version, run the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic through an AI, and it'll give us the right and the accurate, but it's that's not how language works. No, you can do that. It's just, it's not AI. You can do that. It's called learning Hebrew and Greek. <laughs> and if you do it, it takes about 10 years. Don't listen to the stuff on. You can learn the alphabet and you can start pronouncing stuff in, a, in 20 minutes. Call me up. Let's get on Zoom. I'll help you. It's not hard to get going. Then you got to, basically, you're learning how to use scholarly tools. You need to learn how to use BDAG and Hebrew. You need to learn how to use Hallett. You got to learn how to use these tools, but then you just got to, it's like going to jujitsu. You learn some moves, you learn some basics and conceptually you get it, but you don't know how to do it. You just got to go do it over and over and over for a decade. And then you, then you know what you're doing. You're not an idiot anymore. Hmm. And it's the same thing with biblical languages. If you want to learn how to read, if you want that clean, I just want to understand what the Bible says. You've been griping about it this whole time. You've been listening to stuff on the internet, listening to podcasts and hearing people just gripe. If you take some of that time, because you're not going anywhere for the next 10 years, a little bit, just do a little bit every week, do 20 minutes a week of trying to learn some Hebrew and Greek. And in 10 years, you're going to be pretty good. But it's still a negotiation is what I'm saying. There is no clean, there's no clean version. No, but the thing is the point is for you to wrestle this yourself. 
is think your own thoughts. This is the fundamental thing that Luther wrote about a long time ago, and he just called people names for being lazy. And he's right. And if you don't want to do this, that's fine. If you don't care, that's totally fine. Nobody's saying you have to learn Hebrew or Greek. But if you actually want to know why the Bible says what it says or what it says, and you want to argue with people, or you think this is correct, or you think this person's wrong, and you want to get in public and share your opinion about this, then these are the skills that are necessary to do that. And there's a million people out there now that are just putting out a lot of garbage because they don't have basic skills. But it is a skill. And I, I don't know. Look, you are the, like, in this field, you're the subject matter expert. I'm not. I have this podcast because I'm not an expert. So I will yield to you on technical matters. But I will say, it's never just thinking thinking for yourself. You are thinking with other people. Even if all you do is sit alone and study, you are still thinking with other people. Always, 100% of the time. But the point is, can you actually engage with those other people and understand what they're saying about the source text in a way where when you have been persuaded by them or you disagree with them, that is actually meaningful in yourself. So I don't mean you can just, I'm going to learn Hebrew and Greek and I'm going to look at the Bible and I figured it out. And I don't mean, but that's not what I mean. You're 100% right. There are other people that have come here before and you're going to have to engage with that stuff too. But for you to be able to engage with it, you need that skill. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I yield. Tap. No, it's the same thing. Jeff didn't invent arm bars. No. Jeff didn't invent chokes. But you know that he is plugged into a tradition that passes on some basic knowledge that everybody knows. And also he's got his own experiences where he's going to tell you some details on his way of doing things that's different from the way one of my professors would. I think though, and it's weird because with Howard, I'm thinking of the Howard Wass episode now. So I think he here in the later stages of life, his career's done. He's looking back. I think he looks back on and and probably felt this way decades ago about historical, cultural, critical approaches to the Bible that he really wants to emphasize reading the Bible communally. And I don't think anywhere in that interview, he gave anybody the impression that, yeah, you don't need to learn these languages because he knows these languages, as far as I can tell. But doing it in a community, which, and, and you know that, by the way, folks, we've talked about interviews that haven't come out yet as of the date of this interview. And then this interview Just is going to do what? Just teasing them. We're teasing them. And then probably some that won't be out until after this, because this is going to come out on Thanksgiving, because Daniel is now officially my favorite interview subject, because he's one of my favorite people. But Daniel listens to everything. So once I get the interviews done, I clean them up a bit and then I send them to him for his feedback just on how I did with the technical end of things. But doing things together. So there's a thank you. There's so the next big project I want to work on is taking traditions. I want to hear some of your thoughts on this, taking traditions, liturgical traditions, and talking to practitioners of those traditions, Jewish, different Christian traditions, and then breaking it down as much as I can, which, wow, there are like 50 versions of Orthodox Christianity. So do you have any thoughts on that? Because it does relate to the hospitality communication kind of thing, relationships. About do you doing episodes on different Christian traditions? Yeah, just, yeah, let's put some of your thoughts out there on that 
I think I've told you that I'm trying to hook you up with Ethiopian Orthodox priest in Houston. So hopefully folks will listen to that. I went to, I can't think of the name of the church now. I want to say it's St. Mary's. Um, but there's an Ethiopian Orthodox Tawahu church in Houston that welcomed me one day when I got to go worship with them. That was a lot of fun. So hope you, hopefully you'll get to, to do that. I think Oriental Orthodoxy is something that's generally forgotten when we talk about church history. We talk about um, the early um, churches in the New Testament, and then we just... We talk about church councils, and then all of a sudden there's a Catholic church, and then there's a schism, and the Ethiopian church, the Syriac church, the um, Egyptian Coptic church. These are other traditions that were there very early on, and most of them they just didn't keep playing the church council game as they So you should talk to some of them, too. That's the plan. I, I know you have an interesting outlook because there's some overlap in traditions that you and I have participated in. But I think, by and large, you, you've participated. You've reached in and grabbed more more M and M's than I have, as far as liturgical traditions I, go. I grew up Southern and, Baptist, and that's where we met. We met at a Southern Baptist church in 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 Katy, and. After that, for a little while, I went to a Quaker meeting in Houston for a couple of years, and then I really struggled in Baptist churches. I, I, my my family on my mom's side had been Southern Baptist for um, generations, and at the church where we met, I think I was the fourth generation of my family that had been there, and then my cousin's kids were the fifth generation when they started. And that all just turned out really bad for my family for personal reasons. And then for me, there was that year, I don't want to go through all my personal church trauma, but like a lot of people, I had church trauma. And I think still trying to hold on to this family connection to Southern Baptist life, I really tried to exist in Baptist churches for many years. Uh, And then eventually it was just, it felt like I was always fighting uphill battle and now I was bringing my wife and kids into it with me and it's just it got I I didn't want to do that we spent a few years at an evangelical Lutheran church which is a great place there's nothing wrong with it but it wasn't for us I started mainly through because of my work in Bible I I mentioned James Maxey and Phil Towner Reverend Dr. Phil Towner Father Phil is an associate rector in the Episcopal Church and when I came to know him uh, just that was just a big impression on me um, that here's a guy who I really respected as a New Testament scholar I think Phil Towner's commentary on the pastoral epistles is still probably the one of the, if not the best, it's definitely one of the top it's my my top three maybe when Campbell writes his commentary on the pastoral epistles then I'll demote Towner a little bit uh, but I had a lot of respect for Phil Towner, and he was. Is he uh, planning on that? Uh, from what I heard in the Chris Tilling interview, he's come on, let's do Romans. We're just trying to finish Romans right now. I'm just I, all I mean by that is Phil Towner is a very good New Testament scholar, and I have a lot of respect for his work. He was also a very involved in this church, and he talked about that, and he would. It was not. It was just cool to see somebody. It's like that's what I want. I want to be 
active in my church and, you know, be accepted and my gifts affirmed and, and instead of feeling like I'm always fighting somebody. Um, and he's not the only one. Um, Christian Brady, uh, also known as Targaman. Uh, he's a very good Hebrew Bible scholar. Um, and he's a very good writer. He's written some really great stuff. He is uh, also a, a priest in the Episcopal Church. And also, I know we've discussed a little bit of work of Will Daphne. Also, a priest in the Episcopal Church. So I just had all this, just seeing these really top-notch scholars, like people that are doing really good biblical studies work that I liked, and they were involved in the Episcopal Church. I we started going. <laughs> now we're in the Episcopal Church, and we like it. That's where we're at. Come visit. And you used to for so a little how, while. How I think you, when I was trying how, to make Baptist life work, you were going to it. Yeah, that's a. I'm not prepared to talk about that publicly yet. Uh, oh, so just me. I have to share, I, but I you're will, not going to share. Um, Fine. Jared. I will in the future. Not fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I will share, but in the <laughs> in the future, I think I feel comfortable saying this. I I feel like in the last few years, I've seen deconstruction become a pretty important part of. American like subcultural religious discourse. And that's cool for those people. It's just, it doesn't resonate with me and where I've tried to listen and engage with it. I see a lot in common, but not anything really specific that makes me want to be a part of it. And I certainly, I, I look at what I want this. I think about what I want this podcast to be. And we don't need another deconstruction podcast. I think what we need is uh, a podcast that is constructing something else. So in that regard, it started out mainly me looking to talk to academics. And I, I'm realizing now uh, it's academics and practitioners. So I want credentialed people, for sure, people who are educated. As I'm moving toward this this big endeavor of talking to people from different liturgical traditions, I'm realizing like it, it may not be someone whose credentials are necessarily going to be that impressive to someone, but being a practitioner of this thing is important enough to be able to discuss the history and background and significance of that thing. Maybe that's a dodge. I don't know. No. Yeah. The way to not answer my question and uh, give us a preview for what's coming up on your podcast. <laughs> so you're very good at this. Yeah. Very, very media I'm all about that promotion. I'm all about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, Who's I'm our just, next guest? It, it, that... <laughs> um, it's going to be Alexiana Fry is the next interview that I'm doing, but I think she'll already be out by the time here's this conversation joking, comes out. Thanks. Like you said, I'm already media savvy, even as a novice to this thing. Um, what is, what's her word? Because <laughs> I don't know what it is. You got me. You got, you hooked me. So I don't remember the, also from <laughs> Stalinbach, but I think from the divinity school there, I, I don't remember the title offhand. No, I don't remember the exact title, but it's like trauma as a hermeneutical tool for the Hebrew Bible. Oh, cool. So that's, I think that's going to be interesting. There's a lot of people out there talking about trauma. Hey, before we transition into other stuff, is there anything from the article that I didn't bring up that you wanted me to bring up? You didn't even finish the key words. Come on. But you talked about the two that I didn't ask about. So I didn't need yeah, to and I ask asked, about And you didn't it's ask not me. A checklist. You didn't ask me to explain the triangle. And I asked my own question about James Maxey. You're a terrible interviewer. 
you should give up now. This is a wonderful Stop critique that's happening publicly, and it just feels so good. <laughs> this is the warmth that a quarter-century friendship brings, and I hope the listeners really enjoy this. Mm-hmm. Okay, but is there anything that no, I, think that that I was, left out? That was, that, this was this paper. This is not what I do. This is a kind of a reflection on the work that I have been doing and trying to build on the work of people I respect in the Bible translation world. That's not my training. I'm not a translation theorist and there's not even really school for Bible translation. There's, there's some folks that are starting to do that. In uh, if you go to a PhD program, you're not going to specialize in Bible translation. I think except for there's a hand, there's a small handful of places that are starting to do that. But uh, I just I wanted to. I, it's not a good paper. What can I say? It's, it's, it's not a great journal article. It's it's in the back. It's, they didn't put it up front. You should go real read Phil King's article if you go have the same copy. Phil King's is actually what people in the Bible translation world are doing. So the kind of stuff that consultants are going to be doing in the future, um, in the same journal issue that my articles and Phil King has one. That's pretty much what's happening right now. So go check that one out. It's better. Okay. We'll try to, I'll try to get a hold of that and put that in the show notes. So that, that'll be one of your answers to the next question. What should I and the listeners be reading, listening to, watching? Where would you direct us? Oh, I mean, I think at, as we've talked a lot, I think everybody should read Ryan Stokes book. Ryan Stokes, the Satan is a game changer. It's really that good way. Book. It's a really good book. If you think that Satan in Hebrew means accuser, he will tell you why you're wrong. He will tell you why and how you have been miseducated and how people have taken ideas from the New Testament and incorrectly imported them into the Old Testament. And he will set you straight and give you a better way of thinking about things. So I hope you go read Ryan Stokes' stuff. He's a very good scholar. My buddy, Rabbi Dr. David Stein, did his dissertation a couple years ago on Ish in the Hebrew Bible. And I don't know what else he's going to do with it, but I know one of the big things that's come out of that, he is also a Bible translator who works for the Jewish Publication Society, and he's the editor of their new, it's not gender inclusive, I think it's called the Gender Sensitive Translation. and. David's work is on how this noun in Hebrew, ish, which if you learn a Hebrew first-year student, you're gonna, they're going to tell you it means man. And it does mean man, but there's also plenty of times where it doesn't. Because in English, when we think about man, we think it means adult male. And David's research shows that's not the case with ish throughout the Hebrew Bible. The big payoff, I think, from his work is that we can approach ish in many cases like a discourse marker. And so that brings in discourse analysis in the whole field of text linguistics and the tools there for tracking participants and that kind of stuff. That's, I think there's going to be a lot that comes from that. There's been a lot in recent years of digital work on making databases that tag up the Bible. We've had morphological tagging for a long time, but now they're going syntactic, syntax tagging. Some of them are doing this. This is going to have to be really case by 
these things. If we want to be take David's work really seriously and actually go reread the whole Bible, thinking that Ish might be more like someone rather than man. So that's really good stuff. I think uh, Christians in general with the Old Testament need to get their head around Milgram. If you don't want to read Milgram himself, oh, you're pointing Milgram on the shelf. Awesome. There have also been a lot of good students of Milgram or people even if they didn't directly study under him. But for example, Roy Gain is one of Milgram's students who's written some stuff that for a lot of people might be more accessible than getting Milgram's being the Bible, three volume work on it. I think one is called Old Testament Law for Christians by Roy Gain. If, if you if you're a Western Christian and you've never really ventured into Leviticus or Numbers because those books are weird, you definitely should. On the New Testament side, I think I've already mentioned Campbell and Chris Tilling a couple times. If you, For me, that's just been incredibly helpful in my life. There was a point in my life when I really didn't like reading the New Testament because I didn't really like reading Paul. Um Doug Campbell and Chris Tilling have taught me how to read Paul. I'm extremely grateful for that because I feel like I have something that I can be excited about sharing with my kids when we open up the New Testament. And I know they're like they're not going to get all the detail stuff right now, but as they grow up and hear the Bible around them, um, I'm excited to get to share the stuff that I've learned about uh, Trinitarian thinking and grace that I've learned from them. Recently, also, I've really tried to get my head into David Moffat's work uh, on Hebrews. And yeah, I think people should spend some time and getting into David Moffat's work on Hebrews because it's really good. It's really good. For sure, the interview that he did on script, thats a, I think that's a good place to start. That's a great place to start just yeah. to hear them. If you just also go to YouTube and any of these people, you can YouTube up some really cool stuff with Douglas Campbell, but also you can YouTube. But there's a really good one at Regent College, David Moffat speaking at Regent College on YouTube. I enjoyed that a lot. In addition, as you said, OnScript. OnScript has some really good gems. OnScript has some really excellent stuff that I, sometimes I share with the translation teams. Like, hey, you should listen to what this guy says about this book before you start working on it. It's, uh, it's great. What else? I don't know. I guess that's it. If you want to learn Hebrew, I think Christo's got the best grammar out there. The Biblical Hebrew Reference Grammar um, by Christo Fundamerva and Jackie Naudia that has incorporated a lot of my work on prepositions. My master's was really cool. When I got to South Africa, I didn't know what I wanted to. I know you didn't ask me this, but I want to tell the story. <laughs> no, no, I'm laughing because of the way you're just patting yourself on the back. My master, guys, no big deal. My master's it was really cool. No, but I'm going to tell you because it's not because of me. It's because of Christo because I didn't know what to do. I was like, hey, I came here because I went to SBL a couple times and I like your papers. I want to take Hebrew grammar and linguistics really seriously. And he was like, what do you want to, you're here to do a master's. We're going to do some coursework, but then you got to write a thesis. What do you want to write about? And I don't know. And he said, I'm redoing this grammar. If you go study tahat, which is this preposition that most of the time means under or below. He said, if you go study tahat and do your thesis on tahat, I'll pay you. And, and it wasn't a lot. It was, I think it was maybe like 
150 bucks American, but in Rand, that I bought a lot of beer. It was great. And so I did my master's on Tachat because he paid me to. And I didn't really, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go do prepositions. I didn't know what to do. And he said, I'm going to teach you how to be an analyst of the Hebrew Bible. And then I would like you to go analyze uh, this and I'll pay you. And then that turned into the dissertation where I already did one preposition. So I just did some more. I don't know why I wanted to tell you that, but I wanted to tell you that. Because you knew I wanted to hear it. I can go. What do you read for fun? Right now, books with my kids. Shoot. Which ones? Right now, I actually by myself, I'm reading The Ninja Turtles Last Ronin because I bought it for my son, who's a first grader, and I just want to say I got through it before I give it to him on Christmas and his mother for my wife. Is, what are you doing? How violent is that? I'm reading that by myself as a preview for him so I can say I'm a good parent. But it's whatever they... they I've got a couple boxes of comic books that I hope one day they'll want to read. So whatever, they like Teen Titans. They like Teen Titans Go because it's silly. So we go get some Teen Titans Go books. The boy likes Spider-Man, so we go get Spider-Man. And it's always just sad. Spider-Man's just sad all the time. He gets to swing around, but when you read the books, it's just always sad. Um, so, Have you ever read the 1602 that Neil Gaiman did for Marvel? No, I did not. not it's... If it's 15 years old, like 15 years ago, I used to read maybe, okay, 12 years ago, I used to read comics for fun. Now it's just with the kids and previewing stuff for them. I think it was. When did it come out? I think 2006. I don't remember off the top of my head. It's been out for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. But the Peter, it's not Peter Parker. It's spelled differently, but it's some 17th century analog of his name. He keeps getting close to these weird glowing spiders and other people keep saying, Peter, quit staring at that spider and they'll squash it. Like it happens, I think four times in there where he's about to become Spider-Man and he's the only one. There is a sequel to that where he clearly is Spider-Man, but he keeps almost becoming Spider-Man and Nicholas Fury or someone else will, (laughs) will stop it because he's just fixated on a glowing spider. Yeah, I've been trying to get back into comics, too. It's been a much longer gap for me than it has been for you. I think I was like 12 or 13 and I stopped collecting comics and I left them at my dad's in Virginia. And like 15, 20 years ago, I asked about them and he said, oh, I think they got put in the shed. So I've basically just given up on my collection of comics. Yeah. For me, though, I'm so, you know, like, I just like what I like. And, like I don't even want to hear new music. And I don't want to listen to new comics. I just want to, like, I like I haven't got to read through Watchmen in over a decade. So I just, I want to take the time to just read through Watchmen again. I want to go through the Dark Knight Returns again. Just, Ooh, there's some nice. that are just really good. And I just, I don't know. They need more time. But I am really enjoying the Turtles stuff. And as much as I liked the Turtles when I was a kid, I'd never read the Turtles comic books. So I'm glad my son's into them now. And I'm taking the time to go read Turtles comic books. And they're a lot of fun. So what music do you listen to when you're not listening to episodes of my podcast? 
I used to listen to uh, eclectic music, and I had eclectic tastes. And in the last, I I don't know what it is. I've always listened to country music my whole life, but very recently it's become pretty much predominantly country music, like all the time. Like who? So it, it's a lot of Dale Watson. Uh, and then I think also recently in the last few years, because of the popularity of Yellowstone, there's been a lot of good bands, good country bands that aren't that had a song on the show or something. And some of them, so Ryan Bingham's gotten really big because of that. And more people know who Whiskey Myers is because of that. Um, so there's some really good country music and bands that you're never going to hear on the country top 40 radio and stuff. Really, the only crossover there is like Tim McGraw. There was that one he did a, a recording of one of his old popular ones. He did when I loved Pearl Jam, when I was in high school, I played a lot of Dave Matthews Band music. We're from Houston. You have to love all the all things Screw. So I love chopping Screw. I'll play no, some Big you. Pokey, and I I listen to Big Pokey all day. When I'm in the mood, if I'm barbecuing outside, I, I like to put on Big Pokey. I like to put on Swisher House. Um, my my roommate in college introduced me to Wu Tang, so I got really into Wu Tang um, when I was an undergrad because my roommate was a Wu head, and so I got really into that. But if I'm just in the car and I put on music, I put on country music. Cool. Okay. Well, if you don't have anything else for you us. You don't want to ride in the car no, with me. I know that. <laughs> I, I would enjoy that as long as you don't put on some chopped and screwed stuff. I'm Look, I got into hip-hop, hey, living in Virginia. I think you know. I am yeah, mostly East, East Coast. Coast. Yeah. That's cool. And I love East uh, Coast hip-hop. East Coast hip-hop is yeah. great. It's some of my favorite. But... Houston, but come on, man, Houston. You're from Houston. Represent. You're from Houston. I've been here you live a while. In Houston. I do, and I, you know, your your yeah. child's from Houston. You, you got I, well, you got Houstonians yeah. in the house. He's tell everybody man, he's, how much he loves Chopped Screw music. He, I'm joking. His son doesn't do, like Chopped Screw music. No, he'll do hip hop, and he, man, he gets really engaged when the East Coast West Coast rivalry comes up, and I think it's almost like this is his form of rebellion, is to be like, I like Death Row better than better than Wu Tang or Nas or any of, and I'm just like, Ooh. that's not okay. That's not a that's not a me problem. You can like whatever that's you a, like. Doesn't doesn't Snoop Dogg own it now? Doesn't Snoop Dogg Dude, own he does. And Death actually, Row? I just found a video of him talking about how he's going to go back. And we're going to have to end the episode soon, but how he's going back and making sure everyone from death row get gets paid. Warren G Nate dog, or I guess his estate at this point is Nate making sure dog. they get paid because oh, they oh. weren't. Let's go listen to Nate dog. Man. <laughs> Nate dog's got this. That's America's singer right there. He's good, but I wouldn't come on, dude. Yes, he is. Okay. Daniel Rodriguez. Oh. Thank you for being here. I love you. And I'm so proud of you. don't want to ride in the car no, with me, I know that. <laughs>